They say in history, things never change. But I think that they do. Mark Twain once said, history doesn't repeat, but it does echo. It does rhyme. And I think there's some validity to that. But it also seems like the more things change, the more they do stay the same. There are some differences. There's some minor stuff that goes along the way, but as a general rule of thumb, it does seem similar. I've been talking lately about this idea of of history as a useful art. I wish I could tell you that that was my idea. It's not. It came from Chris Bryant, who's a associate professor of history at Eastern Florida State College. And it was a phrase he used in a conversation he and I were having about history and the idea that I believe that history is more art than science. And he came up with that phrase, useful art, and everybody that I've shared it with that I take seriously in the history world since has been absolutely blown away by that phrase. How do we make history a useful art? It's one thing to know it. It's one thing to understand it. It's one thing to see its applicability, but how do we make it useful? And is that really the issue that we're having with history as a subject in the world around us? History is dying. People aren't doing history anymore. People aren't doing this. People aren't doing that. Okay. How do we change that? How do we make it useful to them? How do we make it so that they see not just the history that is in front of them, but use it? in a way that's beneficial to our society and to themselves. The more I read in the Anti-Federalists, the more, I don't want to call it depressed I become. It's not depression. It's it's almost very, it, it, it's kind of very Cassandrian in a way. Cassandra was the, the, the Greek in mythology who, was cursed by the gods to be able to see what was happening in the future. She could predict it. She could tell everybody with 100% accuracy. But her curse was that no one would believe her. And in some ways, I feel like the Anti-Federalists are very Cassandrian, and I, and I feel similar to that. I'm not saying that the Anti-Federalists were 100% right. There were things that the Anti-Federalists were wildly incorrect about, things that they didn't understand. Things that the framers, the Federalists, were able to see with prescience into the future and understand that things were not always going to be the same. You know, we talked the other, the other day about this idea that I don't think that the framers would be surprised by our computers at all. I, I really don't. I think that they would have seen that coming. What they would have been surprised about is the fact that we were failing as virtuous citizens whereas the Anti-Federalists wouldn't have been surprised by that at all, but clearly would have been surprised by some of the changes in technology. They seem to think everything was just going to stay the same forever. But the more you study the Anti-Federalists, you have to understand their understanding of history, and that takes you back into Greco and particularly Roman history, which for some reason 
and I'm not completely clear on it. I think Cato had a lot to do with it, but they are just absolutely engrossed. Americans in general of the, of the 18th century were very, very engrossed with, with Roman history, the Roman Republic in particular, and its fall into the empire, which, you know, I mean, that's the story of Star Wars, right? This is how, this is how liberty dies to thunderous applause. And in many ways, that's taken right out of the vision of the Roman Republic. And we talked about Cato, both the Anti-Federalist and the, the Roman senator, in the dying days of the Roman Republic and some of the things they were going through. Uh, rigged elections is a huge concern in Rome. There's actually a scene in the TV series Rome, which I – Again, it's an adult theme series, but it's a pretty good series. Um, there's a scene in that where it becomes very clear that one of the one of the men running for office has been asked to run for office, and as he's running, he's trying to get prepared for the debates, and he's trying to get prepared for the job, and he's trying to learn, figure out what it is that he's supposed to do, and he's chided by the campaign manager. Don't you understand? You you've already won the election. You don't need to worry about those things. The election is rigged. You'll you'll be there. But it didn't mean that the campaign didn't go on and there's plenty of mudslinging and Roman mudslinging is particularly, I don't know, it it tends to be very sexual in its nature. Uh, there's a lot of commentary about, you know, somebody's prowess sexually or whether they're, they're predilections uh, from, a, from a sexual standpoint that becomes more, seemingly more important than anything else. It's kind of funny looking at it, you know, with a with a long eye, but at the same time, it's the kind of thing that today would make us very uncomfortable. If all we ever talked about in today's elections was the sexual proudness of John Fetterman, I think I think we'd get a little creeped out by that. I really do. Do you really want to hear about Mehmet Oz's sexual preferences? I I don't. I don't even want to hear about it about Kim Schreier or or Hillary Clinton or anybody else. There's. But in, but in Rome, that seemed to be the the go-to thing because everyone understood that the, the elections were basically rigged and that bribery was basically part of the ritual of an election. It was It's called ritualized bribery, but it's so much more than that. I mean, it's almost as if it's part of the, the, the checkoff sheet. Have you bribed this person? Have you bribed that person? Have you, have, how much did you bribe them? Did you, did you offer them more? Did you offer them a job? Uh, you know, Bill's been dealing with that down in Florida uh, with the sheriff down there who's been accused of offering jobs for candidates to do things the way he wants them done. In Rome, this is almost expected. And it, it leads to a lot of corruption and it leads to a lot of problems. And you might say to yourself, but Dave, that was that was 2,000 years ago. It doesn't matter anymore. Except that it kind of does, doesn't it? People complain to me all the time today about rigged elections. Elections are all rigged. The famous uh, scene in the movie Gas Hole, which uh, I went to see back in Turlock back in the day. And there's one of the, one of the guys that are interviewing who says, well, I don't if it really why do they even why even vote it doesn't matter if 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 your vote meant anything they wouldn't let you do it which is kind of a negative attitude about it 
and it's certainly not the attitude of the virtuous citizen, but but he's not completely wrong. Uh, many people think that today's elections are rigged, and I'm going to tell you that they are, just not the way that you think they are. It's not some machine somewhere. It's not 2,000 mules. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the way the system is in place now to once a person is in power to maintain that power. The laws are written to make it easier on incumbents. They, they don't have to do the things that, that challengers have to do. The monetary system associated with candidacy, particularly with the idea of war chests and packs, is insane. I mean, it really is insane. And, and you talk about ritualized bribery. Uh, there's a Again, I don't think you should get your politics from movies and TV shows, but uh, if you haven't seen the film, the Eddie Murphy film, The Distinguished Gentleman, you should watch it. The, most of the scientific premise of the film is bunk, but the political premise of it is fascinating. And it's uncomfortable because as you watch it, you think to yourself, well, that's outrageous. And then you look at your news and you think, well, that's crazy. And you think it would never be that way. And then you pick up the Wall Street Journal last week and read about government officials making millions of dollars trading their stocks as they knew what was about to happen with COVID. These government officials knew that they were going to do something tragically bad to Americans and they didn't warn you. They didn't call you and tell you, hey, you better sell this stock because that company's going to go down. Or even worse, they didn't call you and say, hey, you should buy Pfizer or you should buy Zoom or whatever because these are going to become big. They didn't tell you that. But they did. Millions they made in what is essentially ritualized bribery while they screwed over the American people and, of course, continue to rig the election. And it's, it's kind of funny to watch some of these ads now talking about how I, there, there are ads running up here for Democrats who are running for office who are explaining to me that they, they limited insulin to $35 a month and that without them, that would never have happened. Now, look, I, I get retconning and I get, you know, going back. To, I distinctly remember that was Democrats saying they shouldn't do that. When President Trump did that. Now, again, I don't agree with Trump doing it by executive order, but, you know, it's, it, it's all about context, right? In the ads of today, people don't worry about context. It's just zinger issues. It's just, it's like the so-called debates. Uh, I don't, I, I've told you this for years, even when I was on the air, I don't watch debates anymore. I, I don't care because the debates are just, they're kabuki theater for starters, they are a great example of Roman politics in the sense that the ritualized bribery is on display, the mudsling is on display, and it's just zinger issues. That's all it is. It's sound bites. There's no actual substantive conversation about anything at all. Nothing. Not a damn thing. And yet we tune in like this is going to be the most important thing. This is the most important debate since the Kennedy-Nixon debate of 1960. No, it's not. It's, <laughs> it's, it's not only not important, it's not even useful because anything you can get from that debate, you're going to get from a 30-second TV or radio ad that's already running, which explains to you that your, your opponent 
is, you know, anti-abortion or pro-abortion or hates puppies or hates the vets or whatever. And whatever that person is, if they get elected, it's going to be the end of the universe. You understand that. This is the most important election we've ever had. And if that person gets in, you are screwed. And so you better vote for me because otherwise, well, I won't screw you. Except that, you know, I'll go trade my stocks and forget to tell you about it. It's, we're no longer interested in electing the best person for a job. Okay, we never really were interested in electing the best person for the job. I'm not, I'm not naive, folks. I understand politics has been around from the beginning. And American politics has always been particularly vicious, particularly snarky, particularly engaged in the, in, the, in the mudslinging of the day. There were times, James Madison is a great example of this. You know, James Madison didn't go to his state's constitutional convention. He was not elected to go to the state's constitutional convention, Virginia. The guy who wrote the Constitution, for all practical purposes— was not elected by the people of his district to go to the convention in, in wherever it was, Williamsburg, in Virginia. You know why? Because his opponent got everybody drunk and got him to vote for him. He bought more whiskey than James Madison did. And Madison was pissed about that. Mad as you can all get out. This has been American politics from the beginning. I get it. I Believe me, I understand that. But it's no longer even – it's not even like high school. Um, way back when, and I'm thinking 7th grade, 8th grade, somewhere along in there, I got it in my head that I was going to run for student body president. <laughs> yeah. So what you need to understand, it had to be the 8th grade because that was the year we moved uh, to Pueblo. And so I didn't know anybody. Nobody knew who I was. I didn't know anybody. Nobody knew who I was. And I got up there and I did my speech and I, I said, these are the things that, these are the issues that should matter. These are the things that we should do. And my opponent got up and said, we need to have more ice cream. I'm not making this up. He said, I will work to get more ice cream in the, in the lunch line. Yeah, I didn't even. I didn't even come close. I mean, it was it wasn't even it wasn't even in the same time zone. I I took a Mondale like shellacking uh, in that election, but but the bottom and I don't know that it was just about ice cream. It was who the heck is this guy? We don't know who this guy is. He's brand new here. He's never he didn't go to school with us last year. But even today, unlike high school, it's not just about opponents aren't just getting up there and saying, "If you elect me, this is what I'm going to do for you." This is what I'm going to do. It's no longer about that, except in the terms of abortion. I'm going to protect women's rights. What about all rights, Congressman? What, what about if, if, if we have to protect all rights, including women's rights, how come we don't have to protect gun rights or free speech rights or religious rights or whatever? Those are questions I want to ask. Anyway, it's no longer about that. Now the ads the promises, the discussions are all about how bad the other person is and how bad things will be if they get elected. The White House this week tweeting that if Republicans take the House, we're going to have a recession. Yeah, we're going to. You know why? Because it's going to happen anyway. 
but you're going to blame them for it, which is, you know, part of that. I come back to this idea of the art of history as a useful art. We know all this stuff. We understand how bad our political system is. We understand how badly it's abused by those who seek power over us. But what did we, what do we take from this and what have we learned from it and how do we apply it? Okay, great. We know that, you know, all of these politicians are lying. We, we know that some of these ads are so over the top ridiculous that we should just ignore them. We know that. But do we? I don't think we do. And that's what concerns me. That's where, that's where the anti-federalist position gets me morose, I guess. The Federalists have this high ideal that Americans will be virtuous citizens, that they will be upstanding, that they they fought for their liberty, they understand their liberty, they understand these things, and they were going to defend them. And anti-Federalists look at the future and go, are you kidding? Those people will be lucky if they can freaking tie their shoes. It's an entropic system. It's going to get worse. It's going to downgrade itself. It's not going to get better. And I think that's the biggest difference between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. The Federalists look at the future with a very bright view. And the Anti-Federalists look at it with a very dim view. And in that aspect of it, you'd have to say that the Anti-Federalists were right. That the system has certainly devolved away from what it was intended to be. Had it maintained its intentions, you'd have to think things would be different. How do we change it? Well, we have to start with ourselves. We have to start with me. I have resolved in my own mind to not be accepting of things just because they're set. We have to stand for something. And we have to be willing to say that we're standing for something. That we're standing for who's the best person to represent us. Not who's the best person that says things I like. Anti-Federalists and Federalists were willing to stand for what they believed. But they also saw in their debate that had many of the problems that we have today, uh, they were able to overcome those by using things that we don't have in our debate system today, our discussion system today. Number one, they had civility. Yes, they called each other names. Yes, they questioned motives. But I can't find where they ever questioned character. I can't find where they ever say, that person will destroy you if you put them in office. They may not have agreed. They may have been concerned that the system would devolve, but they never said that person will become personally evil. But most of all, they had a commonness of purpose. They understood what they were trying to do, which was move the nation forward with caution and guarded optimism. We don't have that anymore, folks. We, we do not have any of that anymore at all. We don't have a willingness to move forward except my way or the highway. Because if we don't, if we don't do it my way, then everything's going to be a disaster. And even if it's not going to be a disaster, I'm going to turn it into a disaster. I told you this in 2016. And after November 2016, I told you Trump will never be allowed to be a great president. Nothing that he does will be allowed to be anything but a problem. Dollar 75 gas, that's a problem. Destroying the universe. Peace in the Middle East, that's a problem. And don't kid yourselves. The Republicans are going to do the same thing if they win. 
They're already talking about impeaching Biden. Why? I mean, I, I get it. Okay, well, he's evil and he's dumb and he's this, that, and the other. And with the pragmatic political reality of it is, if you impeach him, you get Kamala Harris. Oh, and you piss off the part of the country that, you know, and then you've got the issue of you're still not going to have enough votes to do it. So why are you wasting your time with it? And you are wasting your time with it. We have none of that willingness to move forward with caution and guarded optimism anymore. We have we have no willingness to have a commonness of purpose, and we certainly have no civility. We have none of that today, and it shows.